This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for October 15, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, every week, we share the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. This week, science has a special issue on mass incarceration. First up for that, I talk with Peter Andre Smith. He's a reporter and researcher based in Maine. He wrote about the science of evidence-sniffing dogs. Can a dog find a body using its sense of smell? Yeah, sometimes. Can a dog tell you a body was in a certain spot a few months ago, even if there's no body there now? It doesn't seem likely, but this type of evidence is being used in courts today. Also from the special issue on mass incarceration, we have researcher Hedwig Lee. She studies the effects of mass incarceration on families and communities. Mass incarceration, as in the massive number of people in prison in the United States, two million people behind bars. That means a lot of families are missing fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters. Forensics is kind of a mess. Back in 2009, there was a scathing report on forensics from the National Academies. There were problems with things like blood spatter analysis, matching hair from a crime scene to a head. Even fingerprinting was found to be problematic. Some of this has improved, but at this point, not all forensic techniques have a scientific backing. Peter Andre Smith is a reporter and researcher. He's here to talk about the science that backs up dog sniffing evidence. Hi, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. What drew your attention to this topic, to looking into how reliable dog sniff evidence is? So I have a longstanding interest in forensic science, or should I say forensic techniques that maybe don't check out so much with the science. And I think there's just an interesting tension between common sense assumptions that make it into the court and then the hard experimental data that we expect in science. The case that you follow through the story, the red wine case, does a really good job illustrating some of these issues. Can you lay out what happened and what the charges were? The case sort of involves a 13-year-old boy who visits his estranged father in Colorado. He's there for a Thanksgiving visit and he disappears. No one has seen him since then. Lots of people search for the body, search for the missing child, and they don't find him initially. And the next summer, searchers do turn up some evidence, the child's bones, and it, they confirm that it is indeed the, the missing child. If there's no indications in the bones, 
how this child died. They find the bones and basically they'd been out all winter in Colorado where it snows and they've been weathered. They couldn't make any determinations about how the child had died, whether there was actually a crime there. Well, let's get the dogs in then. What happens when a dog trainer comes? They had many different dog search teams and some of them sort of led the people astray. But eventually they find this one dog handler who's from Wisconsin. At the time, her name was Karen Corcoran. She was a police officer in Madison. And she, she runs this business on the side where she uses dogs to search for missing people. And she has trained her dogs to detect human remains. And so they come and they sniff some evidence in the police warehouse. Some of the evidence is the boy's father's clothes that he supposedly wore the night of the disappearance. The dog is essentially going into this big empty warehouse and sniffing evidence and then sitting down next to the evidence. And to Karen Corcoran, the dog's handler, this means that the dog has detected the odor of human remains. Okay, so it's some kind of signal? When the dog sits, that's making a, it's called a trained final response. And that essentially means to her that the dog has supposedly detected the odor of human remains. But there's no blood, there's no, there's no evidence that you could find with like a mass spectrometer or something to say this is what the dog is smelling. Yeah, I mean, I, I only have what's in the court record. And as far as I can tell, that this evidence is then sent to the crime lab and they, they say they, they can't find anything on it. They don't have blood, they don't have DNA, they don't have hair. And that's isolated at where the evidence is stored, but they took the dog to the cabin. Did it find anything there? After they had done the evidence search, they went to the cabin where the boy's father lived. They called him and asked permission to search his residence, and they went inside. And again, the dog supposedly detected the odor of human remains both outside the cabin and inside it at many different locations. We should point out how much time had passed at this point. The boy went missing in November of 2012, and these searches with the dogs were done in August of, of the following year, so a little more than a half a year later. Did the dog take the trainer to where the remains were actually found? As I understand it, the dog indicated in about 43 different places. And as far as I know, and what the handler has said in, in these court documents that I've seen, in none of those 43 locations were any visible remains located. So we're kind of narrowing in here on what dogs can do, and maybe they can find a body, but are they going to find where a body was? What can we say about a dog's ability to do that based on experiments, based on research science? Yeah, I think it's a pretty common sense assumption that if, you know, a dog sniffs out human remains and then leads investigators to a dead body. I mean, I, I don't know necessarily that you need experimental validation of that. I agree. <laughs> right. But I think the question here is, are dogs potentially leading people astray? So they could be leading people to the wrong location. They could be falsely ruling out some scenario. Or I think in this case, this possibility that there could be some sort of residual odor or that the odor of a dead body could be transferred from, say, the suspect's hands onto some hard surface. And if you look in the scientific literature, there's not a whole lot of studies that have looked deeply at this question. And the ones that have looked at this question really don't look at residual odor that persists on a surface for more than 65 days. Outside of the, the red wine case that we've been talking about so far, there are other cases in the U.S. where this kind of evidence has been used to put people in prison, right? That's correct. Yeah. There are courts in Tennessee, Wisconsin. There are a number of other cases where 
they don't necessarily find the body. They don't really find any evidence. But there are these dog indications that seem to suggest that the odor of human remains have persisted. The courts have accepted them and, and people have gone to prison. What are some of the questions that science could address about this residual odor? Could there be some kind of way of testing whether or not these particular molecules are released by a cadaver and they stay around? Can we do that? Yeah, I think we could do that. I mean, I, I did talk to some experts who are both proposing those kinds of studies and also have some ongoing efforts to characterize the volatile organic compounds that are coming off cadavers and testing to see whether those odors persist over time and also whether dogs can detect them. Yeah, it's a different question. I mean, we were talking a little bit about the other cases that exist. I mean, like one of the open cases that I know about where dogs supposedly detected the odor of a dead body was a dead body that went missing in 1975. So the dog is indicating in this basement of the former resident's house and police come based on this dog indication. They come in, they knock down the building and they find nothing of evidentiary value. And they still charge this 84-year-old guy with a murder that supposedly happened more than 30 years ago. People die at random all over the world. How are we going to ever know which one the dog is talking about? Right. And then some other person had died inside this house between 1975 and the point of the investigation. I mean, you could say that the dog is detecting the odor of the person who died, but not necessarily the person that was supposedly murdered in the basement, maybe. But prosecutors have used this evidence to sort of connect the dots and charge this person with murder. What's likely happening in these cases where no evidence shows up or the dogs are shown to be wrong? Are they just doing this behavior at random? Do we know anything about the false positives from dog sniffing? There have been some studies that suggest that handlers can reliably cue their dogs. In some cases, they're making overt signals to the dog. And in some cases, they're making unintentional gestures that the dogs are picking up on that are not necessarily related to the odor, but are subtle cues that dogs have evolved to recognize in us. Is there any way to take the trainer or handler out of the equation, either for the research or in the field work? If you ask handlers that question, I think they'll say that like the dog and handler are a team. So it's hard to say, take one handler's dog and give it to another handler. So it's a, a true double blind test. I think most of the studies that have been done have not necessarily done a, a very good job of blinding the handler. So the handler sort of knows what the right answer is. That can bias the results of studies and of real world investigations. Speaking of trainers cueing their dogs, can you talk about this gunpowder and cannabis example from your story? Uh, this is certainly one of the more popular studies that's cited by defense attorneys in, in these cases. And so a woman who was actually a dog handler and I think very much wanted to just test out to see could handlers reliably cue their dog. She set up this test in a church and every morning she would show up with gunpowder and cannabis in this container. And then she would tell the handlers to go search the church. But there was nothing actually inside. She didn't put any of the evidence inside. She just put red construction paper on the wall that supposedly that handlers understood that that was a place where the evidence was. And so the handlers got their dogs to indicate like 85% of the time, but there really was no true positive. There was no odor that the dogs were supposedly detecting. There was no cannabis or gunpowder inside the church. And after she published that study, she was pretty much run out of the field. I think most people did not like the results and really saw it as overwhelmingly negative results. There was another study you talked about out of Australia where 
At this time, they were looking at data from the field and, and what the success rate was for drug-sniffing dogs. What did that look like? Yeah, I think there's a real lack of accountability. There's not good data collection in the United States. We really don't even know how many police dogs there are. We don't know how often search and rescue dogs are deployed. We don't know how often they're accurate and we don't know how often they get it wrong and send people to prison. So I think that's a real problem. But there was a Supreme Court ruling. And as part of that case, there were motions submitted and they cited this real world observational data from Australia looking at drug detection dogs. And this was like tens of thousands of supposed indications where the dog supposedly sniffed drugs and they did a search. And I think it's like something like 74 or 75% of the time they found nothing. It really suggests that the dogs are not detecting odor necessarily, but they are being used as a way to generate probable cause and to search people for illegal substances. Going back to the red wine case, we have a missing child. The bones are found. The dog indicates maybe there's a smell of human remains on the clothing the father wore that night. The dog also says or indicates that there were remains in the cabin at some point. Is that enough to go to trial? So I think there's a pretty persuasive case to be made that this was really the only evidence that showed that there was a dead body inside the father's house. There was some other physical evidence. There was some blood that was found, but it's really difficult to prove that that came from a dead person. And I think there was also a lot of circumstantial evidence. I think there was like an estranged relationship between the father and son. There were a lot of other accusations that were made about his character. And I think all those things together in combination with the canine sniff evidence helped tie any loose strings together for, for the prosecutors in the state to charge him with murder and take him to trial. And the jury found? Yeah, the jurors found him guilty uh, in about six hours. So there was very little reasonable doubt in their mind, it seems. Given the lack of scientific backing for this dog sniff evidence, particularly for the residual cadaver odor situation, why do you think prosecutors keep bringing dogs and Evans to court? Is it just because it's successful sometimes? Yeah, I think prosecutors rely on dog handlers because they have been successful. They have successfully convinced jurors in the past. Court proceedings can be really grueling, mind-numbingly boring. So I think that like dogs have a sort of way of injecting some levity and... Oh, just bring a puppy into the courtroom and you're guaranteed to win. <laughs> right. But I think there's also this issue of the cultural resonance. One of the experts I talked with, Benjamin Bloom, who's a evidence scholar at the University of California, he brought up this issue of the cultural persistence of this idea that dogs can detect things that we cannot. Do you think this is here to stay? Or are we going to see a decline in the use of dog sniff evidence, given its sketchy relationship with science? So it's judges that are determining whether or not this evidence should be admitted or this type of testimony about dogs detecting something in places where nothing is found. So I think the case that I followed sort of exposes this bigger hole in the, the evidentiary fence where something that's profoundly lacking in scientific testing and validation can be accepted. And there are tons of forensic disciplines where people make assertions that have never really been tested or well vetted. In the future, I hope that there are better studies that people can rely on. But I think that there is this, still this bigger question of how do we want scientific evidence to be admitted in the courts? And I don't foresee that problem necessarily being resolved in the near future, but it certainly seems like it would be a good idea. Thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, thanks again for having me on the show.
Peter Andre Smith is a reporter and researcher based in Maine. The story we discussed was supported in part by a grant from the MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellowship. You can find a link to the article at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my next interview with sociologist Hedwig Lee. We talk about the ripple effects of mass incarceration on families and communities. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. There are more than 2 million people in prison in the United States, the most in the world. We also put people in jail at the highest rate, like the most per 100,000. If you're worried that it's about population size, it's not. With that many people behind bars, the ripple effects are huge. We now have a contributor to this special issue on mass incarceration, Hedwig Lee. She's a sociologist at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Her review is about the effect on families of having a close relative in prison, which is more and more common, and why some policies might need to change if we want to better support these families. Hi, Hedy. Hi. There's actually an anniversary of mass incarceration coming up pretty soon. It's been 50 years since what? What happened 50 years ago? We saw a high increase in the number of people that we were incarcerating, and that then began a huge exponential increase in not only people behind bars, but then people connected to those people. Yeah, if you look at graphs of this number, sometimes a picture just does it so much better than words. And what kind of policies put people where they are today? I think there's lots of policies that we can think about that are related to why we saw increases in mass incarceration. Some of it was related to things like the war on drugs. The war on drugs is not just one policy. It's a series of policies that have impacted Many populations, disproportionately populations of color, changes in drug policies that became stricter and put people behind bars in mass. I don't think we know all of the reasons why we've seen this increase, but many focus on that particular policy as an important one to think about. With numbers this huge, two million people plus actually are in jails and prisons in the U.S., how likely is it for someone to have a family member in prison? At least from the statistics that we have available, Over half of people have experienced having a family member incarcerated at some time. And then we know that these numbers are also disproportionate with disparities in experiences for people of color, including African-American, Native American, and Latinx populations. There has been a lot of research on the effects of imprisonment on health, on your life course, economics, for an inmate or someone who's been incarcerated and then released. Why look into the effects on families? You just named one of the reasons why. It's because when we think about incarceration, we often just focus on the individuals who are incarcerated. And we should. There's a lot we need to understand and know about the negative consequences of incarceration for those who are placed behind bars. We also know these have impacts on family members, too. 
And if we really want to understand the consequences of incarceration, we have to think about those individuals who are connected to those. What happens to family members left behind? What happens to their economic situations, their health, and their general well-being? They're just very much tied to the experiences of their family members. And so if we don't think about them, then we're ignoring a big piece of the picture of why we have to rethink mass incarceration and its negative effects. What are some of the approaches that you took to figure out how this affected families? There's actually pretty limited data to understand how families are impacted by mass incarceration or in particular, the incarceration of a loved one. For the most part, we're using data sets that were collected not to study incarceration per se, but have that information. So many of us, what we do is we try to draw from surveys that have been collected that will have information about maybe a a family member that's missing due to incarceration or some surveys that ask particular questions about experiences of a parent being gone because they're incarcerated. So we use those kinds of data that also include information about economic outcomes, mental and physical health, for example, information about other family members to then try to understand how these experiences are linked. And then we're able to do analysis on those topics. Despite how common having an imprisoned family member is, there are some differences that seem to set up families to have this happen. What do the surveys show about that? It's important to understand that lots of the families that are experiencing incarceration are already disadvantaged. And that would make sense when we think about places that are over-policed, We can think about a lack of economic opportunities, et cetera, might lead to situations where an individual might be engaging in practices that could lead to being arrested and incarcerated. But long story short is families who are experiencing incarceration are often already disadvantaged. They're dealing with economic insecurity. They might have other issues in terms of the neighborhood quality in which they live in that are also impacting them, even before anyone is in contact with the criminal legal system. Right. And then what happens to a family when a person comes into contact with the legal system and does go away? Even though we know on average, at least, that families often are already disadvantaged prior to a family member going to prison, prison does then amplify those experiences and lead to even more negative outcomes, right? So when a family member leaves, they're often somebody who's contributing to the family, whether that's through money or childcare, providing social support, et cetera. And now those family members have that lost income. Moreover, many individuals when in prison are also in need of additional care. So family members are now having to provide money to commissary accounts so people can get the food they need, traveling to go see families, paying to use prison phone systems, which we know in many places are quite costly are all things that families contend with. So we mostly just talked about the economics of it. So what about emotionally, the effect on the community? Do we know anything about that? We know a lot about that, or at least we know enough to say that at the family level, family members can experience stigma when a family member is incarcerated. In some cases, family members might not be able to or want to talk about their family member behind bars. There could be stigma even for children. If teachers know about their parent being incarcerated and just communities writ large for many places and spaces, large swaths of the population can be gone and literally are not part of the community because they're behind bars. And that can also lead to sort of deterioration in social capital and social connections in important ways. 
despite the fact that these statistics that you do have say it's detrimental to families as a group, as a population, to lose a person to the prison system, that might not always be the case. But that's not something that we can pick out from the limited data available at this point. Yeah, I think that's true. We make a lot of assumptions about what happens to families when somebody leaves due to incarceration, often based on ideas around if a person, for example, is convicted of a nonviolent offense or a violent offense. And we actually just don't have the data to be able to say any of that with any level of veracity. We know on average, having someone incarcerated can be bad for families. And we know that there are alternatives to incarceration that could work a lot better, even for individuals who might be providing some risk to families, maybe a family member who needs additional mental health care help. But we can't really say much because we just don't have the data to be able to assess that out. Are there different ways to think about how this affects kids versus the parents versus the romantic partners of the people in prison? When we do think about families, we often focus on children, and that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot more data availability to understand those relationships. And when we think about children, we think about them in a particular light because they don't have a lot of autonomy. They rely on families to protect them. But we need to also be thinking about the impacts that incarceration has on women who are left behind. Their health is also deteriorating. They are also facing lots of economic problems and also thinking about women, not just in terms of romantic partners, but also grandmothers and mothers who also often are the ones who are holding things down when, when people are put behind bars, which majority are men. Of course, there's an increasing number of women who are also attached to the criminal legal system. And that's something that we're worried about. I'm worried about, but also many people are focusing on in their research. So don't just focus on kids. There's ways in which there's stigma to be a woman, especially a romantic partner or a mother, because it seems like your responsibility. Why are you with this person? And I think that's, you know, I think can be tricky. The survey data is not fine enough to say, if this happens to this family, we're going to see this output. If this happens to the family, incarceration versus remediation or rehab, we can't say enough about what the effects of that would be because of the lack of data. There is a growing body of data to suggest we need to be thinking about the consequences of mass incarceration for families, but we still lack the kinds of survey data that we need to really be able to answer this question in more precise ways. What's the difference between families who have a family member who goes to prison versus are experienced or able to engage in a program that's in the community to deal with with a conviction, right? We, we need better data to understand those things. Let's talk about this from a policy perspective. So why is it important to know the impact of mass incarceration on families when thinking about policy? Well, one is because I think the policy conversation is pretty narrow. When we do think about mass incarceration or talk about it, again, we are focusing on the individuals who are connected to the criminal legal system, those who've been incarcerated. But there is a growing body of research. At this point, there's, there are large quantities of papers that suggest that we cannot just focus on the individual who's actually in the system, but that family members, the children, the mothers, the grandmothers, the sisters are also experiencing negative impacts. Even if we're thinking cost-benefit analysis-wise, we don't have the correct inputs in those analyses if we don't include 
families and communities who are also dealing with these larger consequences of incarceration of community members and family members. Looking at the data that's available now, obviously more needs to be gathered, but what would some preliminary policy recommendations be if you wanted to help families to lessen the impact? One is thinking about what happens prior to incarceration. Can we improve economic conditions and social supports available to individuals who might experience a family member incarcerated? How can we improve access to high quality child care for families, in particular mothers, even if a family member is already behind bars, but prior to those experiences, I think is one. What are alternatives to incarceration that we need to be thinking about? There's also lots of research to suggest that incarceration is used as a catch-all for lots of other issues that communities face that don't necessarily need to use incarceration. How can we improve mental health care access How can we improve other sorts of community level supports that can also serve as ways to help restabilize individuals and integrate them into society without having to turn to jails and prisons? I think those are two big ones that we can think about and that many people are talking about in the policy space right now. Can we do more than survey people to find out what's going on with prisons, with families, with people who were incarcerated? In science and often in social science, there's great value. And especially in work where we're talking about policy, there's a great value placed on thinking about causal connections. And that is clearly important. We need to think about causality, especially when we're thinking about interventions and policy solutions to some of these really complex issues in terms of how do we address mass incarceration and also its impacts on the families but that we need to really value ethnographic work that has also provided us with really deep insight into the ways in which family members have been impacted or the mechanisms that link these experiences to those outcomes. You know, as scientists, social scientists, but all scientists who care about the human condition and these kinds of questions that we need to be using ethnographic research in the same way we use econometric models and other forms of data analysis to understand things like mass incarceration and the collateral consequences of incarceration. They go hand in hand. We wouldn't be where we are in terms of the research if we didn't have people who are actually talking to individuals impacted by incarceration. We may not have even thought about those individuals, to be honest, because I think a lot of ethnographers are the people who remind us about all the people who are part of a story. Thank you so much, Hetty. Hedwig Lee is a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, St. Louis. You can find a link to her review and the rest of the special issue on mass incarceration at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. <laughs> 